Welcome back to part two of the CBH Tim Sale interview. I'm Alex Grand here with Jim Thompson interviewing the one and only comic professional Tim Sale. Let's continue. All right. Superman Confidential, yep. where you're working with Darwin. How weird was it or good was it to work with another artist as the writer? And I know you were an admirer of his. Was that a fun project to do together? Well, first of all, Jeff had left for Marvel. I was still under contract with DC. Right. So I was bereft. Dan DiDio had the idea of a series of confidential books, first of which would be Superman. Pairing me with Darwin was a dream come true. Right. But I still had never worked with Darwin. Well, I did date night with him. Right. But he wrote, like, page one, this is what happens. You know, three lines. And so I was I fleshed out that a lot. Because that's all he had... He was going to do it himself. He was just on his shelf. So he never written much more than that. So I took it from that. And it was a joy, obviously. And problems were... Darwin didn't really have a story. And I think he thought... This is for the confidential. I think he thought he was going to figure it out as he was going. And he really never did. And he also wasn't communicating with Chiarello, who was the editor, and me about where we were going. And I had to do the covers before a lot of the stuff was printed, sort of first, right, all at once. And there is a kryptonite rock, a rock of kryptonite, in which a being is inside of it. And we don't know if that being is innocent, evil, whatever, and couldn't get Darwin to say so. So right. I drew covers where they were fighting, and it turns out he's, he's supposed to be beneficial to mankind. So it was totally out of whack. I was drawing half of it without knowing any idea where we were going. But in between those things, there were moments of... Just Darwinian, Lobian vignettes that were just so perfect. Yeah. And we begin with a date night on the Eiffel Tower. But anyway, there's a scene with a polar bear at the Fortress of Solitude that Darwin in print said, I wrote my first Tim Sale scene. So he knew what that was. Right. He just didn't do very many of them. And that was frustrating. But everybody um, had to... I mean, Jeff Loeb had to learn how to do that, right? I mean, like, it's... Yeah, not- but Darwin knew how to do it. He knew exactly what it was. Jeff showed him what it was. And Darwin knew what to do. He wanted. He also wanted to tell this other story that he hadn't figured out yet. And if he figured it out, I'm sure it would have been a much more satisfying experience but I slowed way down because I was just, you know, what the hell are you doing? And I want to be inspired. He wouldn't talk with me. I couldn't get him on the phone. There was no back and forth. I was used to that with Jeff. But there were things like the polar bear, the date in the Eiffel Tower, 
All the stuff when we went back to Kansas, Superman swallowing a lava. He didn't know if he would be okay <laughs> on the inside. Right. He's terrified. He shows up at his parents' house going, ah. Like, what's going to happen? No, I just went through this horrible experience. Right. And one of my favorite panels I've ever drawn, one of my favorite scenes I've ever drawn, is he vomits lava on his hands and knees on the beach of this <laughs> atoll, right, that he's saved. And there's the dog singed and smoking, barking at him while he's doing this. <laughs> no explanation, no anything about it. Final question on, on Confidential was, it seems like you could do Batman for like ever and just do new things about it. Was part of the, the Confidential thing that like you just nailed it with Man for All Seasons? Do you think you have as many Superman representations as you do Batman? Not Superman, but Superman's world. Especially as it pertains to Kansas. I think there's a lot of stories that could be told there. Sort of him going home, but also early stories. You know, Lana and Pete, Ma and Pa. I tried to imply some of that with the uh, my faux photograph Polaroids that I did in the beginning of the collection. So there's a swimming hole, there's a there's baby Clark with Rusty, the dog that never really lived. You know that story? Yeah. 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 And, you know, stuff like that. But that's not he doesn't have a rogue gallery that interests me, you know, he doesn't have that kind of thing. It's it's really the Kansas stuff that interests me. Oh, interesting. So when you saw Superman, the film... Because really interests me. The, 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 I, I'm so on board with that. When you saw Superman, the movie... Which one? 78. 78 with Christopher Reeve. Yeah. For me, that's... Glenn Ford and that particular aspect is the one that, like, catches me emotionally. When Pa Kent dies, everything about it, the angst of being able to do everything but not show off about it. Like, right. I love that stuff. And, and like, that's probably the part that, that catches me the most. And you got that so well in A Man for All Seasons. Well, that's Rockwell. A lot of that is Rockwell. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. So that is your Superman, isn't it? To yeah. To some degree. I didn't draw it to that. I drew it to Rockwell. Right. They well, did too. Jeff didn't was they? more of a... Yeah, probably. Jeff was more of a fan of that movie than I was. You know, the first thing I think of is I like pink very much lows, you know, so it's not... There's a lot that's really dated and a lot that works in Kansas, but I think we did Kansas better than the movie did. I think Darwin did Kansas better than the movie did. Darwin does everything better. I mean, like, I know you don't care for Wonder Woman. Darwin nails Wonder Woman 
in New Frontier. Like he makes it more interesting than anybody ever did. I ever saw. I agree. I own. I own that page. Ha! Seriously? Yeah. And he hand lettered it for me. There's the door spaceman. That's it. You you own that page. That's great. Wow. Clark, come in. You know. Join us. No one ever got one woman is better than Kyle. Come in. No, and from that to the niggers over here, you know, just the range of that, the scope of that story. I rarely go to the comic book store. But I had gone to the comic book store and I saw the New Frontier and I looked at it and I was flipping through and I saw, you know, full page spreads and three panels on the page and it just looked great. I loved the drawing and took it home, read it. I remember reading it at the gym of all places and I remember reading the, the two pages were... Martian Manhunter is changing shape as he's watching TV. (laughs) Showing it to my girlfriend at the time, who was, you know, in in the gym with me. Hey, look at this. This is great. She's like, what are you talking about? And we talked about it earlier. I wrote a fan letter. And that was just, you know, saying uh, to Darwin and to Dave and to Chiarello, what a perfect story. And how much I admired it. But I didn't know any of the DCU. So I was learning all these people. Darwin was a huge military guy. Challengers, though. You knew Challengers. No, I didn't know Challengers. We, we made up Challengers. I, I had, we had no... Jeff and I had no history with Challengers. We so knew. when you saw Ace Morgan as that character, you must have said, holy shit. Jeff said to me, as far as I know, these are four guys who look exactly alike except with different hair. We're going to make them as different as we can. No, I, so I didn't know the challengers, but I didn't know the losers either. And, and the, oh. you know, the first issue begins and like 15 pages in, they all die. And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Because they're losers. Well, I guess, but, you know, jumping into the fucking dinosaur's mouth. And how great is that? You know, anyway, I had no idea where I was, but I loved it. And that's a very rare thing for me in comics. The only other time I felt like I've discovered something that the world already really knew was Black Sad. I was going to ask you about that, because that knocks me out, too. I saw the first issue, first volume, in Paris, in a store, and I looked through it, and, oh, my God, this is great. And I went and saw my friends and said, do you guys know this? And they said, yeah, it's the number one book in Paris. And I said, oh, okay, well, you know. Is that the first issue or the polar bear issue? No, the first issue with the cigarette. Yeah, okay. Polar bear issues, I was going to say better. It's not better. It's more ambitious. It's, yes. The first that, one is strictly private eye. That polar bear is artistically designed as like evil in a way that like, God, it's amazing. Yeah. I own two color sketches that Wanho did just working out color stuff, which he does a lot before he gets to the page. 
One is the hanging of the bird that we see on page two. Yep. And the other is the uh, the three horses that call out Black Sad for being half black, half white because of the... What happened to your snout? He says to him. Black Sad is brilliant. Mm. It's all anthropomorphic. Uh, he's a house cat. Private Eye. Jim was talking about the polar bear. The second volume is all about racism. First one is just straight ahead, Private Eye, Sam Spade stuff. Right. And they all have... They haven't been... The first two haven't been topped. There are three more. I mean, like, at some point you just say, you're not going to do better. Right. And that's common with, like, so many comics. It's like, that's where you hit it. It's it's like... But the level of artistry is always superb. When you got an Eisner, which you did get one, and it, it also has to do with the, the notion of Eisner, because when you list all of your favorite artists that are most influential, you didn't mention Eisner. Right. What was it like to get an Eisner, and what it was... What is your relationship with Will Eisner in terms of as an artist? Getting the Eisner was twofold. One was I was very nervous and did not think Jeff. And he said to me, if you ever win another award and you don't thank me, I will never forgive you. (laughs) Did he mean it? I think he did. I admire Eisner more than I like his work as a groundbreaker as a interested artist trying to tell different stories different ways and the variety of stories that he wanted to tell is vast and did tell is vast but I never was really drawn some of the splashes sure but I never was really drawn to the stories or Maybe there's a, a, a kind of archness to the, or datedness to the dialogue and the situations and things like that. I just, he never made an impression on me the way that I guess his minions did. <laughs> Does that include Darwin? Did you ever talk to, to Cook about that? No. I know. He obviously... Had a great investment. No, because I don't think that's Darwin's best work. Also, Darwin was too in love with Eisner to make it his own. What is Darwin's best work? New Frontier and Solo. Ah. How do you feel about Parker? Unreadable. Oh, that is really interesting to me. Why? It's too nihilistic. Uh, because of the source material. Yeah. Yeah. Darwin's part is spectacular, but he was so in love with Westlake. Right. And his relation with Westlake, his personal relationship, he revered him. Which it leaves me cold. But you think... I, mean, he, I have it all, because I, I love the graphics of it, but... But he successfully captures it, and that's what the problem is, right? I mean, he like... Yeah. And I have no interest in reading Westlake. Right, I now, see. Boy, I think the visuals, like, they, it's some of it. They're his, great. 
there's so it's some of his best work, but I understand what you're saying, and it's his best work in a way that is not what you want to see him do. It's cold-blooded. The art reflects that. There's some really interesting storytelling techniques that he'll do. I can think of a number of pages where he'll encapsulate, I'm sure, our 20 pages into this sort of montage. And then he'll go into panels. And he'll know just when to do that. On the other hand, he'll have a, you know, a page like Parker's drinking a bottle of whiskey. We see a window, we see a bottle of whiskey fly out of the window and smash against the wall and across the alley. And then we'll go back to just the window. And that's it. Yep. And just great storytelling. You can only do that when you're writing it yourself or adapting it yourself. Or you're working with a writer who says, this is what we need here. And that's rare. It's really rare. Is there something that you would have liked to have adapted? Because I know you're interested in film. You have a good knowledge of film. I think of Simonson doing Alien, and it's like, man, he nailed that so well. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you would have liked to have done as a adaptation, either film or literary, that you just are dying to do that you haven't gotten to do? Nothing comes to mind. What about Caged Heat on Cinemax? No, I'm kidding. That'd be interesting, though. I'd read your take on that. I mean, you have so many, like, there are such sensibilities with you and things that are obviously you. Like, with Man for All Seasons, you've got it with, like, like with that notion. Is there anything that, that just a movie that just, or, or a piece of literature that you'd like, I can do that? Well, you mentioned Conan before. I don't know what I could bring that Frazetta and Kubert didn't bring. I see what you're saying. Following Potter's model for black and white vignette drawings, 20 or 30 of them throughout a small book, and then maybe four color full-page things. There's no money in any of that. There's no. It's too much work to try to get it off the ground. The sports writer for like Saturday Evening Post and things like that, who wrote a book called The Snow Goose, which has been adapted by the BBC in the 70s. Harris and Jenny Agutter, a heartthrob in the 70s. Hmm. And it's about a young girl growing up in the on the South Marsh coast of England and coming of age through a, a number of years. And she meets the kind of legendary ogreish person who lives not in the marsh, but in the marshlands, uh, you know, in a house and stuff. But if not a hunchback, he's, he's crippled in one arm or something like that. And he's an artist, and he paints the geese. And he teaches her... She comes to him with an injured goose and says, I'm told that you know how to heal. And they try, and... 
he says the way that we'll know if she's okay is if she comes back next year. So that it takes place over a long period of time. And so as they grow older, and she becomes 15, 16, 17, they begin a kind of relationship. And then Normandy happens because that's where it is. It's where it's set. And she comes to see him and he's getting in a, a boat just I have to I have to go I have to go save some people and she begs him not to go and it's just a heartbreaking story I mean he doesn't go back and but the goose does right and just it's like a 90 page noveletta right and I've always wanted to illustrate it I did some sketching of it when I was in New York in 1976. Very influenced by Potter. But outside of that, I, I haven't, uh, no, I haven't ventured beyond comics or if somebody what? paid me to do it, I would do that tomorrow. Let's talk about Tim Sale Black and White. Richard Starkings believed there was a way to make money by championing various artists. He, he had done this with uh, Jeff Scott Campbell, which was much more just an art book. And, but for me, the background was a, uh, and the backbone was a interview where he would drive up from LAX and drive to Pasadena and spend six hours talking and taping an interview with me. Birth to Earth, as they say in uh, Versailles Story. And just went out and gathered like a gazillion images of mine and populated this big, beautiful book. What was the last version that was published? Heroes in the Backyard. There are only two. One was the sort of smaller uh, 9x12, I guess, version and then there was a bigger hardcover, hardcover with a color cover, and had like three hundred more pages in it, and had a, a color section. Had and its subtitle was "Drawing Heroes in the Backyard," which you know meant that I was working on heroes, and I worked in my studio, which was in my backyard. But there was no more uh, interview than in the previous one, but a lot more art. And would, would you like to do a, a, a revised version? I don't think it needs it yet. I mean, I would like to hope that there's a point where it might make sense. But there isn't, there isn't that sense now. That's a good, good answer. Yeah. That was a real joy to put together. I mean, uh, I love Richard. He's smart. He asks great questions interested it was easy to edit with and go through all that and so no it was great it's a super smart interview with you it's something I agree to, yes I, I, it, it's something for us to aspire to I mean like uh, all the questions asked are very smart I respect that book a lot there was a lot of editing because we were chatting a good deal of the time right just in my living room and talking and drinking beer and and that's the difference we were drinking gin and that was beer so maybe it's 
No, I don't think that's the difference. Uh, the um, <laughs> stranded. Yes, casual. I mean, the dogs are lying around. Well, we got our version of that. Pete Coogan. <laughs> Joss Whedon. Did you yeah. ever have a conversation with him? Yeah, more than one. I just want to say, because Tim did a Tales of the Slayer, and it was a very good one. As a Buffy fan, I, I want to ask him about this, because I want to know about your experience with Whedon. Well, I was a Buffy fan. So, like, you're a Buffy, the the, the TV show fan. Yes, yeah. there is no other. Joss is a odd duck. So it's hard to have a conversation with him mm. without thinking that he's working on a lot of different levels. Oh, okay. This is super interesting. I mean, like, I don't know if you're, like, a big fan, but Joss is a... Odd duck. Yeah. Let's talk about this. Um, I wanted, right away, to connect with him because I was a fan. Jeff knew nothing about Buffy, for, and then he faked it. He asked Richard for the entire box set of Buffy DVDs, like the day before he had to go to audition for a job on Buffy. And so he, like, bulleted through all those episodes. And I said, we could just ask Richard or me, but anyway. But I met Joss first on, on, maybe on set. I remember showing up on set and showing Jeff a two-page spread from Dinner of a Yellow Number 2. The uh, subway scene with Daredevil and the train is rocketing past him. But on another track because he's killed or the fixers died. Right. Anyway, I showed up to show Jeff and I showed that to Willow, actually. And she was very sweet and said, oh, that's so great. But whatever. But every conversation I ever had with Joss was uncomfortable in some way. <laughs> yeah, it was just, it was weird. Including working on Tales of Slayer. It, that, what do you want to do? You know, well, I don't want to do this. Let's do something medieval. Okay. He just wrote something. and Was he smart about it? I mean, was it like, what was weird? Smart how? Well, that's what I'm asking. Like you said, it was weird, but like he seems. Is it because his mind was in other places? So he didn't feel like he was listening to the conversation at the moment? I don't know if I know that. I see. So maybe what was going on in his mind, it didn't feel like he was quite with you in the conversation. I mean, from your perception. There was always a sense of disconnect. Disconnect of the moment. I also remember a time when I had a drink with him at the Marriott in San Diego. Very quiet. Somehow, Kirk Douglas' movie, The Bad and the Beautiful... Oh, yeah. Came up. And I talked about how I loved it. Yeah. And there was a real moment of connecting that could have happened because he said, I love that movie. <laughs> and then it went nowhere. <laughs> right, because he wasn't connected to the conversation, it sounds like. Some, but he gets know. movies. He is a natural in terms of 
musicals. I like whatever he does, whether it's that Glee episode or it's his obviously once more with feeling. He really knows how to do a musical in a way that so many people don't. What you're saying is he can't relate it in a conversation. He couldn't with me. I don't know if he could with somebody else. Right, right. That's interesting. He's just awkward socially. There you go. That's the bottom line there, it sounds like. But talented in, in what he does. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, like, gee, that's weird to be, like, that sensibility and be in, in the field that we're all interested in. I mean, half the people deal with it are socially. Right. It makes perfect sense. But yeah. nonetheless... Did animation influence you at all? And did manga? Because it almost looks like it would, except I don't think it does necessarily. But no. but manga especially, it's like you you have those things in a in a bit. But I don't think it is actually there. I think no. it's it would be a misunderstanding. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but you understand why I'm saying it, right? Not really sure. Okay. All right. And fair enough. All right, you have mentioned multiple times Mark Chiricello. Chirillo. Chirillo. I think he's beyond awesome. Me too. How do you feel about DC firing him? How do you feel about his work in general and his impact on your career? I think it's an idiot move. Beyond it, yeah. On DC's part. Furious. Especially as it as I understand it, it's a money move. And it just shows the ignorance of the people who are making these decisions, which are, um, if they're based on money, it's short-sighted. Because there is nobody that has a greater standing in the artistic community to get talented people to come to your company in Chiarella. And to be a, a soft landing for talent to come in, including me, absolutely. So I selfishly mourn it, but I also think it's fucking stupid on as a corporate point of view. Now, I understand that from speaking to Mark, he's doing fine, but it still pisses me off. Between him and Karen Berger, it seems like some of the firings are like the dumbest things I can even imagine being yeah. in terms of DC. Those would be the two that I, I... It's like, what in the world are you doing? My history with Karen is not great, so I come down on the side of Chiarello if, if we're going to pair the two. Right, but you would understand why yeah. a general person might sure. say that. What's your relationship? Karen would look at me... And then walk right past until I made money for the company. And then she was my best friend. Yeah, I see. Ah, I haven't heard a lot of negative criticism about her. She was anything English, automatically better. English, you mean as in British? Yes. Almost fetish, I would say. Anglophiles. But, boy, they were hitting it, like, hard, too. I mean, you can't... Yeah, but... She wasn't trying to find anything else. She was in thrall of anything that came from the aisles. Right. That makes sense. 
And I think that because of how she treated me. Because you could have been, you're perfect for that. I didn't aspire to that. There was no money in that, really. That's how you get on Entertainment Weekly, I guess. But you don't make any money. And I was interested in making money with Jeff and doing other stuff that I really enjoy doing. Doesn't mean I wouldn't have enjoyed doing some stuff for Vertigo if, you know, Karen had a thought of putting me together with somebody or asked somebody who they might want to work with and they came up with me or, you know, there are all kinds of ways that it could have worked, but it didn't. But her walking right past me until she was interested that I was making money for the company is a deal breaker. And she did have a better sense of, in terms of the writing, I mean, the thing on Vertigo during a certain period of time was the writing was better than the art. Yeah. I'll never forget her praising Alan Moore's hysterically overwritten prose at the beginning of Swamp Thing. Like <laughs> real literature somehow. Like right. raindrops splashing on the... It was just hysterically written. <laughs> I, I, I have to think intentionally. And she took it literally. Right. Like it's perfect. Like that's literature. And you know... Yeah, you okay. Although I lost my interest and my respect. Yeah, that's interesting. You know what he I'm was, talking about. He was no, a, I know because I've met the people. Very like that. beginning, but I know that issue too because yeah, well that that and that's how he started it off, right? Yeah, and then it ends it's with the swamp thir- getting shot and all that. Yeah, it's. A, I mean, I, I like that sequence, but you're right. That first issue is just it was just paragraphs of words. It's pulp. Prose, right? Everything is overwritten. That's not writing, but it's not. It's not like Shakespeare literature and stuff. Yeah, well, Shakespeare is that too. And uh, Shakespeare was blowing. Don't say it's brilliant. Right, right. I see what you're saying. And I've also met people like that in environments where, like, that person wouldn't would be dismissive unless you prove something. And then they were suddenly so nice, and and so I understand that too because I have run into that. But Berger knew. Basically, not. It's hard to say this and not sound. It's not literal, but she knew who to who to blow at the right time. I mean, like in that this was the right. Like he was catching fire. She knew to praise him at the moment, whether it was overblown, whether it was whatever. But he just well, he was Gaiman, of the moment. Gaiman was her real guy that she blew at the right time. Right. Right. Blown to the point of overblown, you're saying? No, I don't. I'm not saying overblown because it worked. Right, I see like, what you're saying. Like I, I won't say overblown. I mean, she's also running a line of comics she, too, so she's kind of working that. I get what you're saying. She killed it. No, I, I mean, I like in terms of as an editor, whether right. it was right or not, whether she made mistakes, right? But she did move that line right. at that time in a way. No, that I know. And, and from off. that from that management angle, I see totally what you're saying. I think just from what Monsignor Sale is saying is that just from <laughs> just from his own personal like you know interaction from a writing that, perspective, from that, and I like that. I like knowing the good and also the negatives. I like hearing that. Well, but I also um, 
I agree with your point, but she didn't also then encourage and seek out other voices. In a way, a good editor does. Yes. Right. There's some... she, um, she stuck to the English kids. And she probably knew that was kind of like this niche she was kind of hitting at the time. But it wasn't that kind of like the, the 90s, there were some elements of just, if you hit that one niche and get kind of extreme with it, wasn't that kind of a theme of the 90s anyway? So Image kind of did their version of that, and it sounds like she kind of went extremely British, right? I don't know what pressure she was under. I'm sure it was a lot. When she found something that worked, I can imagine that she just wanted to relax and say, I found something. Right. But that doesn't gain my respect. We, we talked about blue, we talked about red and yellow. Let's talk about white. Yeah. Captain America was hard for you. Yeah. Let's talk about that. And why, why was that? Yes. Some of it was personal, I had some health issues. I thought we'd kind of run up against, Jeff and I had run up against a, a wall of uh, telling sad stories. It was more a straight-ahead sad story without much of a story around it. I mean, the, yeah, the Howlers were behind enemy lines before the U.S. was involved in the conflict invading Germany. Well, let me put it this, this way. Everything I hated about Stranko's Rick and Cap, Jeff did to the nth degree. Because <laughs> Jeff liked that. Well, Jeff had just lost his son. I see. The oh. Cap did lose Buffy. I mean, Lucky. Buffy. That would be great. <laughs> That's a great episode. Let's do that. Let's yeah. write that one. Yeah, okay. Um, Spike, what are you doing here? <laughs> I'm, I'm sending you the script tomorrow. I'm sending you the script. <laughs> From my perspective, Jeff overwrote the series, and he hit the nail on every head I didn't want to have hit, which was the cap. Rick tortured the Buckies, died. I, I'm responsible for it. Right. Which is the Stan Lee version of? I mean, like that's well, how it, you. It, it, According to Strago, he wrote all that stuff. But yeah, that's the version that were the 110 through 113. And I, I think he, at different times, he would have found a different way to tell it a little bit differently that wouldn't hit that nail on the head quite so hard. And eventually through it, and look, I was going through my own stuff in, in various different ways. I was moving, falling out of love and then into love. And Oh, you were? Yeah, and I had some health issues around that time. Really, the delays, I was unprofessional. I see. But the, I'm just talking about the reasons that it was hard to be professional. Right, right, so, right. Well, was that kind of a midlife crisis kind of thing? For me? Yeah. No. Okay. No, I, I went through that. Before? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we do that earlier. I see, um, I see. <laughs> And so the, by the time we got when, and I kind of lost a little bit of perspective on things, because we'd done ridiculous shit before, and I was okay with it, but there was a time in issue six where Cap has to ride a motorcycle up the Eiffel Tower, all the way to the top to defeat the Red Skull. And I just went, actually do what that. Are you, no, you can't actually do that, and... And I said, well, you, you're such a lazy motherfucker. What are you, what are you doing? Who, Jeff? Jeff was? Yeah. 
But it really works, turns out. Right, as far as on the page. Nobody cares. No one's questioning that stuff. So, the delay in Cap White ultimately is on me. It's not on Jeff. There's just reasons why. Did it hurt y'all's relationship? It did. I see. So that did hurt you and Jeff's relationship. Has it it fixed? It's fixing. Okay, so that was the, the last project... Of those four colors. The good news is that within the last year, Jeff and I have reconnected. Okay, I see. And talked and gotten along. And he's here at the show, and I was trying to get together with him. But I didn't know he's here until today. Uh-huh. So I don't think it's going to happen. But... Ian and I got together for lunch at his place last year in Beverly Hills. Uh-huh. Great house. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he works in TV, sure. Seriously. Well, but that's the point, that he doesn't do comics. He doesn't, he doesn't write for TV. His contract says he can't. And he's working towards a retirement. He wants to make a nut where he can just live the life that he wants to live and say, see And, and not work, and yeah. say, see ya. That sounds pretty cool. And then maybe write, write some stuff. Because, some of us need that. <laughs> because I think he, he wants to write. I think he misses writing. And when we had lunch last year, we talked about some stuff and, you know, maybe this, maybe that. But it was all... Nebulous and don't really know. But that was a lot more than we'd had for a long time before that. Right. Um, was that because you guys talked about it or because which, you didn't talk about it? Like with Captain America, did you publicly say I wasn't comfortable with this and that made him upset um, or because you didn't talk about it as enough? far as I as far as I know when Jeff reached out to me and said he saw something online on sci-fi. Yeah. I think probably in New York a, a year ago in which I made a couplet on Cap White. And he called it out of the blue. And then when we, when we had lunch at his house, it was the first time I had heard him say... You know, when I can make my nut and this is over, I got some ideas about what we might want to do. And then we talked about realistically, do you think you could do this anymore? Do you think you can, you know, do a book a month or something? And do you think you can write a book a month? Do you, think- you were saying that? No, he was. He was, he was saying that. Oh, okay. And fair question. And I said, I think so. I know I can do, maybe I can't do the schedule part of it, but I know I can do the art. I mean, I haven't, I think I'm drawing as well as I, maybe not quite as well as I once was, but but that's a part of, like in Dark Victory, I was very clear that because I come off of the schedule of Superman for All Seasons and then went right into pencil and inking Batman again. 
with the history of Long Halloween, that drawing every day made me better. So there's that part of it. But I had to want to draw, right? And I wanted to draw. And so, you know, look, it's a fair question. And I said, like, I think so. Let's see what we got. And that's what, where we left it. So it's in the it's in the process, like you said. Yeah, it's. I mean, first of all, it ha- he has to end with his his own TV, stuff. right? The TV stuff. stuff. I hope it does because there's something about you guys working and like, yeah, it's a great team. I want to go through the people that you like, and I want to know why. So you like Alex Toth a lot, Toth. Why? What is it that you like? And I love him. Maybe my favorite. Well, why do you like him? It's not going to be as surprising answer. Because you love his temperament. He's yeah. <laughs> a sweet guy. You believe? <laughs> this makes you feel good. Yeah. Um, he distills things down to its minimum. Right. That's the comment. that's a lot of people say that about him. Um, Is it a panel or a story tell like panel to panel? That's the thing I'm interested in. Like, it's it's more a panel for me. I, I think, for instance, here's something. Breaking news. <laughs> White devil, devil, yellow devil. Yes. So what it is? Yeah. So good. Chiarello thinks that's the perfect story. But I challenge you to look at the last page. And not get the flaw in the storytelling. The last panel is our hero, the white guy, bent over backwards, his knees under, his legs under him. Right. Like he's been shot in the front, but he's been shot in the back. He'd be on his face. That is not good storytelling. Kurtzman would have caught that, wouldn't he? Like an uh, easy... He would have drawn it first and it said, top that motherfucker. He wouldn't have... Yeah. 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 He would never have let that happen. Anyway, so... That's interesting. So that Alice could make those kind of flaws and you'd still forgive it and because the rest of it was so brilliant. I'm not a big fan of his storytelling or his stories right. that he wrote. Right, right. But his storytelling, when Archie wrote stuff for him, for instance, is absolutely... I have a page from uh, Skyhawk. Oh, cool. Which is two up and dual shade paper. Airplanes over the fields in Germany. Just terrific stuff. I'm scared to show it because I don't want to bring dual shade out into the light. You know, or anything, but I probably will anyways. <laughs> so, as far as Toth goes, he has so many different genres where he's so interesting to look at what he's interested in. Romance stuff, Hot Wheels, who the fuck would Man, kill Man, just killer. And yet they're, yeah, I mean, Hot Wheels? Right. You can't do that. But the romance stuff would be my and the worst stuff would be my top 
stuff that I would want from him. And the horror stuff, I guess, too. It's the geometry of it, which is always what it is for me. I can tell you one thing. I think he's a terrible superhero yeah. artist. That Black Canary some, story Some that Black did? Canary stuff, yeah, some Black Canary stuff. But Batman, terrible. Uh, Superman, terrible. Oh, yeah, that's awful. But that Batman Haunted Sky story, you didn't like that too much? With the fighter plane in it and no. his cape with the title on the title page? Not too much. It was trying. Yeah, especially that title page. He was trying for sure. And I think he liked drawing planes too. Oh, he's best. Best planes guy. You think that too, right? Why do you think I have a Skyhawk page? Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> Why do you like Neil Adams? At some point, he knew he was better than anybody else around him. Right. Any genre, anywhere. Yeah, and in multiple mediums, not just comics. I mean, advertising and other things. Right. He stood Start out. Kind of layout was often distracting needlessly. Yes. And that hurt his storytelling. His storytelling was much better when he worked with Denny O'Neill, although I don't like the stories very much. Oh, interesting. Are you talking the Green Lantern or the Batman stuff? Batman. Okay. But especially in the main title, there were some uh, sort of odd one-offs on Detective or something that he would do with, you know, what's the one with the... Ten Eyes? No, the beckoning uh, hand through the... The open doorway. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Right. There's variations on that that he did. Did you like his Dead Man? I did. Yeah, those are cool. They were like a stepping stone along the way to him getting better. And experimentally. Mm-hmm. As a kid, I was really enthralled with Bork. You can't hurt Bork. Oh, yeah. yeah. Bork and her shoe. <laughs> That's a good one. I like that story. Well, you know, they showed Bork in the recent TV shows. He was in it for like five minutes, and oh, his name was Bork. But it was just cool that they, they mentioned him for those yeah. few minutes. Yeah. Those Aquaman ones, I mean, those uh, Brave and Bold ones are, are really fun. That Sergeant Rock one? Yeah. Again, as a Marvel guy, I didn't really, you know, the fact that I knew Bork was, is amazing to me. Yeah, it's almost random that you knew um, that one. But I do like that story, too. Because he felt more unstoppable than Juggernaut did in that Alex Toth right. issue. Right. Like, I almost felt like Bork I was more overwhelmed as a reader. I was like, whoa, this guy's, like, strong. He's going to punch his way out of prison. Yeah. You know? I don't care what it feels like. It doesn't feel like anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, going back to the comment that Toth can't do... Superheroes aren't... Right. But also, so he's Jug- like, Juggernaut that, isn't his right. house. But at the same time, it's not fair, right? Because he was like, had to draw over Kirby's layouts. And it's like a, just a bad fit. And anyway. then Kirby drew... Right. Things, so, yeah. But I mean, even then, that Bork issue, like you said, I read it. I'm like, okay, this is just some douchebag little guy Batman's going to fight. Right. And, I'm like, and the more I read the panels, I was like getting a sense of dread as I was reading those pages. Right. It's weird. Usually stories don't affect me like that. Well, it affected me. And yeah. I was probably... You know, 12 or something. Yeah, you read it fresh. And yeah. you, weren't, you weren't born. I wasn't born, yeah. I read it as, a, as an adult much later, yeah. By the time we got to the Joker's five-way revenge, yep. that made a difference. But there were also, you know, before that... He's a good segue to a, a question 
a bit off topic in terms of cover artists, because as I mentioned, you and Dave Johnson and a few others are like some of my favorite cover artists. And I think you escaped the thing that I saw happen with other ones, specifically Gil Kane, Neil Adams, and Nick Hardy, where they were really on top of their game in terms of interior stuff. And when they became the primary cover artist for DC or Marvel in the case of Kane, they really seemed to lose something uh, and became almost hackish. And I didn't see that ever happen with you when you were doing a lot of covers. But what do you feel about that in terms of covers versus interior artists and those people where they just seem to like become something else as they keep doing well, covers? Well, uh, first of all, I think they were doing a lot more covers than I've ever Ever done. did, yes. And that just grinds you down. And Dave has one of those imaginations that is untiring and he'll just come up with something out of the blue, out of his ass. He's a design guy. That like just, yes, but, but it'll be, you know, I'll turn around and he's doing Nick Fury singing a song to a diner, a 50 diner that he's described and just as a $500 commission with the you know giant logos and he's lettering it all and he just he can't stop i'm not that guy no um, but you're you're batman and his batman that sequence between the two of you when you you guys were doing the covers were the best batman covers i've ever seen you know what i'm talking when, about? when dave emphasizes design there's nobody better no. He doesn't draw terrifically. He no. draws okay. But when he designs it, those Punisher covers? Oh, yeah. Unbelievable. Is uh, Stranko not much of an influence <laughs> on you? No. I mean, we're so different in that way, but I learned a lot from him. Right, right. In my opinion, he's a much better designer than he is a drawer. I mean, isn't that a... Anatomy and poses can be wonky and stiff. Every once in a while, they'll be great. But his design is always interesting. It is. It's always it's always And it's very distinctively him, too. So he doesn't reach outside of his comfort zone that way. The importance to him in the 1960s in comic books is astounding, you know, and that's what I'm responding to. That makes sense. What about John Bushima? Why do you list him as one of your favorites, and, and what is it about him? Anatomy. Oh, yeah, because that's it, isn't it? With the power of the body. Yeah, that's his main thing. And he was always better when he reached outside of that, and he mostly did that with the surfer. That he, he played with design a little bit more, panel layout a little bit more. Do you think he was a good storyteller? Oh, sure. In the old school sense, you should be able to follow it without words. Stranko would be hopeless that way, for instance. A lot of people, Adams would sometimes be good that way, and otherwise not that 
that way. Even at its most experimental, Buscema was a solid storyteller. Was Sal Buscema a solid storyteller? Sure. Yeah. I mean, they boring both... Boring as hell. Boring, but he knew how to tell a story. Sure. John so, knew how so to do he, it. he made a living on that. The same way that, I don't know, Herb Trimpey would or a lot of other just workmen, people who could turn out the pages. And if you were given a, a right at the right inker, boy, it was actually really... It would certainly help, you know. That John Severin, Herb Trimpey stuff is really good. Severin and John uh, and Marie. Yeah. He would help them. But they were transforming something pedestrian into enhanced pedestrian. They weren't really breaking any ground or... And, you know, I guess you could say the same thing about Ramita, but he just drew so beautifully. You know, just pretty. Everything was pretty. Yeah. And and when I tried to imitate him on uh, Spider-Man Blue... Petey is dreamy. Who wouldn't want to fuck Petey? Right. Everyone does. Jim does. No. No? no. Six-pack. I mean, he has six-pack. I'm sure. I mean, imagine. I would fuck the Ditko Petey first. Oh, really? You kind of like but, the... Oh, I would fuck the Ditko Gwyn in a second. That bitch? Yeah. Well, that's, that's my <laughs> own... Yeah. The little barrettes and yeah, shit. Yeah, and it's just a me thing. Oh, man. Okay. Yeah. No, the Ditko Gwen. No, uh, it's a Veronica. Gwen was a fucking bitch. Yeah, you're right. She was mean. Her? Veronica. She was awful. She had a Veronica-like thing that... Oh, I see. ...just kills it for me. But when you say Ditko Pete, you like kind of that nerdy anxiety, like social anxiety type. I like everything about Ditko Pete. Squarehead. Yeah. Squarehead, yeah. Yeah. Right. High school tie to... And somewhat conservative. Hates it? protesters. You like that. That well, turned you on? No, it's not that part. <laughs> He was a tie to high school, slacks, creased, double creased. Right. So no, wait a minute, wait a no, minute. He's no. in high school. You want to you want to make a high school boy? High no. School. All right. Let I'm, me let me just. Make I'm taking clear. notes, no, buddy. Let me make clear that what I'm saying is that the the Peter Parker of the Romita era, right, could get girls. He yeah. was cool. And I don't like that. Oh, My really? Peter Parker is me, and we get beat the shit out of by Flash Thompson. No, we I get see, tied I see. by you, a pole. You, we are not right. the we we are the undercover cool mm-hmm. guys. Right, but no one recognizes. No, him. I know what you're saying. Romita Pete is he's got a bike. He's got girls. He's getting laid. It's good. It's a, lame, it's a lame bike. Yeah, I I know what you're saying, but you know what? I grew up on. Ramita Spider-Man and Ron Friends Spider-Man. And I did love <laughs> Ramita Spider-Man. <laughs> Dickos came later and I didn't like it in the beginning because I imprinted on Ramita Spider-Man as a kid. But that being said, later on, I appreciate it. And it's certainly more creative. But I love Romita's like romance comic you approach. You grew up on the Romita Spider-Man. Me, I did because I read no. reprints. Yes. yes, reprints. But you grew up on... 
And no one says this. And no, no I'll one, tell you what. No one I grew ever up on, says, I grew up on, I grew up on Ross Andrew. No, no, no. No one I, ever says no, no, no. that. I grew up on Spider-Man and his amazing friends, and that aesthetic was based on the Ramita stuff. <laughs> right. But whoever says, I grew up on Ross Andrew, Spider-Man. <laughs> Nobody. Nobody. Because nobody did. <laughs> but it's very combat. <laughs> but that is awesome. Yes, because nobody, nobody cared. You're right. Yeah. So let's leave it at that. If there's anyone that I'd uh, bang in the comments, they're over the age of 18. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Not you too, though. <laughs> Not you too. <laughs> Nick. Nick Cardi Wonder Girl? Like, Nick Cardi Wonder Girl like, is under 18. Her. I'm just saying. Because <laughs> that's a repeated pattern. I'm just yeah, saying. Yeah, but yeah. that doesn't matter. We're let's, all friends. Let's, let's move on. <laughs> let's talk about Ross Andrew for a second. Why don't you like Wonder Woman? Not just Ross Andrew Wonder Woman, but... Especially Ross Andrew. Yeah, because that's awful. She doesn't have an interesting backstory. She rides kangaroos. Not interesting. Yeah, I don't find the kangaroo aspect interesting. I like the Greek myth stuff, but... I don't. Yeah, you're not into Greek mythology, then. Not in comics. Not in comics, yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I think you have to kind of like the Greek myth stuff to like Wonder Woman, I think. And according to John Byrne, she has a Greek accent. I don't care what John Byrne says. As a a comic book artist and auteur, what is your feeling about John Byrne? He's asked about Neil Adams and a few others. John, John Byrne. At all. Yeah, exactly. Well, I was Adele. asking about ones he admired. Right, right. But I want to hear about, you know, because Jobber did a lot of comics in the 80s, right? In the late 70s. What's your impression of those comics? I can live without them. Right, okay. Easily. Easily. Okay. Like not pioneering, you would say. Well, I guess pioneering, but pioneering towards something I'm still not interested. I see. All right. That's fair. Dave Cockrum. Dave Cockrum, yeah. But I could care less about what he created. Oh, I see. And it's a billion-dollar industry. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Claremont, same thing. Yeah, okay. Is there any Marvel icon? Because I know out of your, like, three, it's Batman, Superman, and and then Spider-Man. I was surprised that Captain America wasn't as, I mean, like, you put him in second tier. Yeah. What about Doctor Strange? Would you like to do Doctor Strange? I still don't have a emotional hook on. But Doom, you do. What about Fantastic Four? Uh, group books, I just done that. You haven't done any, have you? Well, the Challengers is a group well, yeah, but but boy, that's and they were the only the FF were the only group that I read. I never cared about the Avengers. Or defenders, <laughs> anything like that. So even as a consumer, you didn't like the group books that much. Yeah, they all seemed like, well, we can interchange any of these people anytime we want. Well, Cap's not here anymore. Let's get Wasp. Not unique, and they can actually interchange the same lines to different people. Wouldn't make a difference. Is there any any writer currently where you would just say, I'll do what, like, Tom King is awesome. Yeah. I mean, we, and we all agree about that. If he said, I want you to do Avengers with me, or you, I want you to do a Vision book? Part 2, would you? Book? Yeah. I'd say, why? Why you? Sell it to me. Ah. Uh, what makes you come to me about this? That's uh, great. 
You want to know why you're doing it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because you've worked at it long enough. People know your style. So if they're coming at you, clearly they saw something they want. Unless some editor said, you know, go to Tim. And so if it's a smart editor that figures out that that's a good match, you, if it's but someone it's you respect. It's a terrible match, so he's not a good editor. Right. Okay, next question. You did one Spectre cover. It was a Joker cover. Ryan Sook was doing like this killer run of Spectre covers. Mm -hmm. And there was a special event where the Joker took over the whole universe or something. And so you did a Spectre cover that where the Spectre looked like the Joker. Oh, that was the Joker month. Yeah, it was Joker month. Yeah, no, those are terrible covers. I hated them. (laughs) That's what I was wondering. Because Sook had... He's very good, and he did this run. He is. Yeah, he's, his commandy was. Oh, that commandy thing terrific. that he. Would you have liked to have done one of those? Yeah, Mark approached me. I was curious about that. Well, if you look at the collection, Mark took some of my work, cut it up as an example of what a page should be. We're talking about the Wednesday comics. In the introduction to the book. And this is what he put in front of DC, saying this is what it should be. And it was my work that I'd already done, and he just cut it up and arranged it differently. But I was under contract to Marvel. Ah, because that was such in your wheelhouse, you would have been great for that. And that's why I will never be under contract again. Right, it's limiting. Because of that specific thing, that's... Well, that, no, that and other things, but... Yeah, because yeah, there was a time when he couldn't do something with Jeff Lowe because of that, of a contract to DC. Confidential, I couldn't go to work with Jeff because they had to end my contract with DC with Superman Confidential. That was one of the best things that Chirello did was that, that, that yeah. Wednesday Comics. Right. I mean, that was Terrific. totally brilliant. And, like, half of those were beyond good. I mean, like, just fantastic. I know. He has a of these great ideas that fail. Yep. They fail, not artistically, but maybe not commercially. Gloriously, but they still fail. Yeah. You and I talked about Dave Johnson and you. What other cover artists? And what's the difference between a interior artist and a cover artist in terms of when you're approaching something, what makes a great cover artist? Well, let's take Dave for example. He can draw, but he's not a great figure artist. He's a great designer. And he can make the figures work within his great design. But when it's panel after panel, it just shows up the flaws and his ideas or his compositions because you have to find a way to make the mundane interesting. I just don't think that's where his strength is or his interest is. But give me a design to do, a character to exemplify in one image or a storytelling point in one image. He's so good. Frank Avella. Right? God, that guy. 
He's coming in and missing you. But when he hits, it's... When he hits, really he's, great. I think of him as a cover artist. Oh, yeah. He's he's not a very good panel of panda. But his covers, when they're right... Absolutely. Just are great. Yeah. Yeah. There's a few out there that, like, they're so good at that. Chrisemni. Yeah. We can talk about some of the Vertigo titles where <laughs> they were always better... And the covers. Well, yeah, I mean, they're the, the Jay Lees of the world, or the. What do you think about Alex Ross? I think Alex Ross has hurt comics more than he's helped comics in a lot of ways. As much as I like some of the things he's done, I like Kingdom Come, but I think there's a stiffness to what he did that, in general, that I think his people have emulated. Not Tarantino, but the emulators of it that can't do it as well, like really made sucky movies. Alex Ross is good at what he does, but the people that do Alex Ross aren't very good. And even Alex Ross, after a certain point, it's like he's just copying. He's, I don't love him. No, he's lifeless. I think he's important to <coughs> Astro City, and I love Astro <coughs> City covers or a collaboration with, with everybody else, and I think those are good. But overall, no, I think I don't like Alex Ross to some degree. But I mean, isn't that how the art of illustration is in general? It's somewhat lifeless and anatomical. The difference from cartooning in general? No. Okay, so what would be an example of illustration that doesn't do that? Rockwell. Okay, true. Yeah, all right. Kobe Whitmore. All right, yeah, I guess I'm imagining some Rockwell pictures, and there does seem like a life like they're actually living in those pictures. Okay, and then in the Alex Ross ones... Maybe it's the eyes. Stiff. They all use photography. Yes, they do. That is not the point. As reference, yeah. But Ross is slave to it in a different way. Um, and that is meant to be impressive and is impressed, has impressed thousands of people. And I can't fucking stand it. Interesting. Yeah, that's like that Sonbloom guy with his Coca-Cola commercials. There is a life in those pictures that I guess with the Alex Ross, you just maybe don't see that. I will give you... Okay. It's the eyes. Hey, isn't, it, isn't it the eyes? No, no I, more Mexican is an example. There is you look at a vigilante issue where you look at a Johnny Quick... That's not lifeless. That is full of yeah, like, but, like but, joy. I mean, I wouldn't consider that like an illustration approach to the pictures. But we're talking yeah. about comics, right? Right. But I mean, I think that's in the cartooning world. Personally. But I, I don't. I think your point of isn't cartooning inherently lifeless? No, no, no. Illustration. No, I don't no. agree with that at all. All right. Like okay, like for example, Hal Foster, Prince Valiant. You know, let's say like for, really in, the, in the in the later forties. It felt like mannequins, but they looked really nice. No, it's pretty lifeless. Yes. And that was like an illustration aspect of it. But um, Hal Foster's never my guy. Right. I'm just saying that as an example of illustration versus, let's say, cartooning like Kirby, which is like all this foreshortening and everything's bouncy and punchy. You know, it's different. Well, yeah, it's different. But that doesn't mean... That all illustration is lifeless, right? Yes. Right. That, I get that. Frank McCarthy. Okay. Check him out. Look him up. Yeah, so this doesn't show eyes, but it does feel like it's alive as he's riding that horse. Yeah. Yeah. 
There's so much more you, you, to McCarthy too. I guess I see. It's not just the eyes, right? There's a body language and uh, it's movement. Energy. There's a movement and energy. Energy to the movement, yeah. Yeah. Where well, you see. know it's real or where you know it's like Lark. Alex Ross is almost like it's like they're all like kind of standing. Death. All right, point taken. Look up Robert McGinnis. And that feels like a person. Yeah. But that's photographed. Yeah, they feel like people. Fuck yeah, that does. Look at that painting. How great is that? Yeah. yeah. Now you don't see in an Alex Ross type. Oh, thing. you never get. I don't get any personality. Okay. At your current age. In what ways are you a better artist, and in what ways is it harder for you now? Harder for me to get up in the day and imagine drawing and making two pages. Not a day, but in two days. Right. The energy that it takes to put that in. there, You feel like there's less energy. Yeah. Okay. Is your hand control as good as it was? Not quite. But I think that, I hope, that is... Due to not getting up every day and drawing a page and a half. I think that was a real turning point. And I mentioned this earlier with Dark Victory. I think that was a big deal. Doing that day after day. And the invaluable part that Mark Chiarello played in our friendship and his... His knowledge of illustration and illustrators in just calling and sharing stuff with me. I think about it now and it's just ridiculous. He would call and talk for me th- for three hours in the middle of the day. I said, Mark, you know you're my boss and you're just wasting my fucking time. Or I'm not drawing that when you say wasting my time because it wasn't. It was invaluable. But the grind is harder. I think I'm comparable to my hand coordination and with the brush. My sense of design would get better if I was doing more work constantly. But I think it's still there. I feel it in my compositions when I'm, I'm drawing for people at guns and at home. That's encouraging. We've been talking about the influence of Marciarello and, and how on the Marvel side, let's talk about John Rochelle for mm-hmm. a minute. It seems like he, that, and, and Chip Kidd, these are design geniuses. Talk yeah. about this for a minute. Well, uh, John is not with Marvel, neither Chip Kidd, but John works with Richard on Comic Craft, and Richard has always called him the secret weapon of Comic Craft, just because he's kind of an idiot savant with fonts and with design and the only reason not to employ them is that they don't come cheap and if you have your in-house designers that are okay so let's go with them but if you want it to really look good you go to John I mean what has he done with you? Certainly everything since the Marvel color books. He and Richard have put together the package when it when it's going to be collected. So, what are the end papers? What are the what's the title page going to look like? What are the extras going to look like? That kind of thing. 
And that, you know, that may seem like a trivial thing, but it all matters to the end result. You'd notice it if it looked like shit. Yeah. And it doesn't look like shit. And that's just a matter of placing things on the page and choosing what to have there and what can what we don't need, what we do need. These are all the extras that we have, and then let me play with it, and um, they're not going to all get in there. So they're un- that kind of he's thing. an example of an unsung hero that people don't understand. Yes, absolutely is. But you understand. How yeah, and, and Richard is very protective of him because of that. But the, you know, the sad thing is that the other professionals don't appreciate it. I don't quite get that, but it's true. That they'll say, anything is okay. Just knock it out, and as long as I get paid. So there's kind of no legacy to it. And Richard and John are, you know, all about the... Given them on their own whims, they will change things at the last second. Because they know printing... It's not too late. And publishers will go, no, sorry. You know, that went out last week. Last week? Well, then we got a week to go. So that kind of thing, that, that's a, it's invaluable. And that's, that's what Jeff used to get into so many fights about at Marvel NBC, saying, you know, no, that's bullshit. There is time. As long as you can get that thing to stand up straight. So from day one of your career to the present, design is a key aspect. Yeah, sure. And I think that's why I respect your work so much, because you're always aware of the design of it, not just the everything else. You're aware of the storytelling, you're aware of the panel, but design of it, and those are the people you are drawn to as well. Yeah, right down to book management. And we haven't talked about Solo, but I designed Solo with Mark, or I designed my issue, and he was open to other people working different ways, but that entire layout, I worked out meticulously with Mark. For everyone's? I mean, in no, terms for, of... for me. For yours. For mine. And yours was the first, issue yeah. one. Yeah. So, turn the page and there's this. That kind of thing. There are no ads, so you could do that. Did each artist do that? Have the same? I don't know. You don't know? I would doubt it. I think Richard Corbin wasn't interested, probably, in getting into that minutia. But I don't know. Cooks is brilliant. Yes. The other book was Dark Victory. And the collection. And I designed that... And again, kind of page by page, we're going to end on this page and begin this, you know, or title pages here. And I insisted on title pages. And Robin Rosterman was the uh, book editor, designer, at the time. And I, I remember calling and congratulating her on the book. And she said, I did nothing. You fucking did it. Hmm. With a little bit of resentment. 
Like you took away my job or no, okay. something like that. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm better than you, Robin, so... <laughs> and there you go. Or you never would have got it if I just tried to describe it to you, so I just did it. I'm a print of yours of the Catwoman with her head cut off and the mirror image where you can see her head. Kitty. Yeah, hanging in my living room. I have taken that to class. I've taught with it. I've used that. From a film theory standpoint, it means a lot. It's it's very useful. When you did that, what were you thinking when you cut off her head at the top and, well, and did it as the mirror image where you actually get to see her? That's uh, inspired by Rene Gro, G-R-U-A-U, who inspired all my Catwoman covers. He signed every piece he did with an asterisk and a G underneath. And so I put an asterisk on every cover I did and on your print. And then my name underneath it as a tip of the hat. He just, he was a fashion illustrator, a French fashion illustrator from the 30s through the 80s, probably. And he would do shit like that. And his most famous stuff was like a woman with a with a hat and the hat was swooped down over part of it. Oh, sure. Yeah. So that was kind of a trope that he would do. And so that doing the reverse image, I, I'd done so much stuff working on Catwoman and I did that print, that arc for the print, uh, right at the end of my Catwoman run. And I was just still in it. And I just thought, you know, reverse it. Chirello colored that, by the way. Oh, it's beautifully colored. It's one of my favorite things you ever did. And I have it in my Thank living you. room. But, but I, I love that piece. I, I hope you like it. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I have it up, too. I think it works as an illustration. It's more an illustration than a comic book. I didn't draw the cat all that well, but we'll let that go. All right. I can't say how much fun this has been for me. We enjoyed it very much. This has been a riveting interview with Tim Sale here at the Comic Book Historian Podcast. I'm Alex Grand with my co-host, Jim Thompson. Tim, thank you so much for doing this with us here at WonderCon. This has been a really fun and exciting interview for us. Well, thank you, guys. It's An important one, my I pleasure. think. It's, it's, I've listened to a bunch of yours. I'm very happy with this one. <laughs> Good. Cheers, everybody. Cheers.